I invite you to turn in the Scriptures with me to John chapter 18. It's about the arrest of Jesus and, and what happens thereafter. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and who brought Peter in. Aren't you one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood round a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret, so why question me? Ask those who heard me, surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of the disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, 
They did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed them over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and the chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release this king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your servant who will expound this passage to us this morning. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the writer to the Hebrews says a couple of times in, in his book, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes or fix your thoughts. One time he says fix your thoughts, the other time he says fix your eyes. It means the eyes of your heart on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, think about him, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what we're doing, what we do every Easter, we come back to it. Let me get this um, PowerPoint up and running. We come back to the Gospels ahead of every Easter. We come back and look at Jesus in in the flesh. We come and fix our eyes on Jesus as as a way uh, to prepare ourselves for the festival of Easter where we look at him on, on the cross again. Um, and looking at him on the cross, we're encouraged. We're encouraged that he's alive. We're encouraged that he went through a lot of opposition so that we can go through the opposition that we face too. So we're coming back to John's Gospel. And if you remember, Rob took us through chapters um, 14 uh, to 17. And now we pick up at chapter 18. So after the quiet conversations and and the prayer, the Gospel now explodes with, with, with action as we've seen three scenes go before us. And in the middle of all this action, there is Jesus, calm, confident, controlled, clear in his mission, compassionate, even in the midst of troubles, compassionate with his disciples. 
And we start to see how Jesus' kingdom is going to work. As people oppose it, people turn against it, people fail in it. We start to see how the kingdom of God works. So let's reorientate ourselves. Um, Chapter 14, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, the life. He promised about the Holy Spirit. Do you remember? But at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, come now, let us leave. They'd been in the upper room. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Um, They'd been in the house. And Jesus said, come now, let us leave. But then he continues teaching for two more chapters. Jesus is the vine, work of the Holy Spirit. Their grief will turn to joy. Then we have that famous chapter 17 uh, where he prays. And then we picked up again, beginning of verse 18. It'll help if you have your Bibles open in front of you. Um, page 1086. Jesus says again, well, it says rather, it says about him, when he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples. Where were they in the meantime? Well, Rob addressed that, and there are a number of possibilities. One is um, that they had a kind of doorstep conversation. That they, they got up. Um, Jesus said, come now, let us leave. They'd all got up, and then they started into conversation again. I think more likely they'd, they'd got up, they'd gone out. They were somewhere in Jerusalem. Maybe they'd passed the temple. And now, beginning of chapter 18, they, they leave the city. They head northeast. Sorry, that's northeast for you, isn't it? Um, head northeast across this Kidron Valley, and they head for a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives that's called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. It's Jesus' standard meeting place, where we read that. It may have been a place um, where they stayed. Maybe they slept outdoors when they came to the festivals. Probably wouldn't be anywhere to, um, to lodge. And it's worth noting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't tell us a lot of what happens in Gethsemane in the other Gospels. Jesus' prayer and so on. It's not here in John. It's a number of things that aren't here in John. It's because he's writing later on. He knows that those other Gospels have already been written. So he's kind of filling in without necessarily telling us everything that's already been told. But the point about them going to this garden is that Judas knew where Jesus would be. We we read that. Judas knew the place. Verse 2, he knew where Jesus, Jesus would be, and he comes with a detachment of soldiers and armed officials from the high priests. But on the other hand... Jesus knew where Judas would be. We read in the chapter that he knew all that was going to happen to him. Uh, Verse 4, he knew all that was going to happen to him, and yet he still goes to the familiar place. Jesus doesn't say, tell you what, chaps, let's go to a different garden. Let's meet somewhere else tonight. No, he, he goes to the place where he knows he's going to be arrested. And when when they come here, the soldiers, um, armed guards from the priests, he takes the initiative. He says to them, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And what happens? They all fall to the ground. Something's going on here. We're never really explained. But what happens is, is in that moment that Jesus says, I am he, somehow his glory is revealed. I think we have to class it as a miracle. And they fall to the ground in front of the glory of Jesus. Just for a moment, he's he's been revealed. And yet, what do they do once they fall into the ground? They get up again and they carry on with the arrest. Now, that's bizarre. But even in this moment, Jesus has a mind for his followers. And he says to them, 
Uh, he says to, his, uh, to the guards coming from him, let these men go. Let these men go. And do you know what? They all do go. Again, I think that's it. In a sense, miraculous. It's God's providence working itself out that they all escape. Even when, they've, even when Peter and John later on have gone into the high priest's um, courtyard, they, they, at some point they've come back out again. There is something going on. There is a miracle of the Lord's providence that, that they escape at the end. In the midst of all this, you know the famous bit, Peter resorts to violence, cuts off the high priest's ear, and here is Jesus' last healing miracle. It's not here in John. It's in the other Gospels. He heals the servant's ear, puts it back on. Because he's not come to see violence done. He has come to, he has come to have violence done to him. So I just want to notice a couple of things from that first scene. Judas betrays. Judas betrays Jesus. For three years, he's looked like a true believer. Now, if you'd been one of the other disciples, okay, imagine, and you'd been with G- uh, Judas for three years, I wonder what you would have said about him. Would you have said, oh, but he was always so keen? He might have been keen, but there's a kind of zeal that kind of covers an empty heart. You might have said, oh, he was just so great with the accounts. He was, he was really good with the money. That was, that was Judas's job. There are people whose devotion we don't question in the church because their gifts are so useful. I'm not casting aspersions at Ken. Don't look at him. It's not, <laughs> it's not about Ken. <laughs> but there are people who we, we don't question because their gifts are so useful. What, but what did Judas himself think? At what point did he realise he's not like the others? He's not going the same direction. And why at that point, there must have been a turning point, did he not turn to Jesus and fall at his feet instead of hardening his heart? It's a scary thought. Three years under the ministry of Jesus betrays him at the end. Where's your heart at? It should warn us, shouldn't it? Turn quickly. And it behoves on all of us involved in pastoral work. That includes um, home group leaders to know where people's hearts are at. And all we can do at any point in time with somebody who says that they're a believer is to judge them by their direction of travel. Are they growing in Christ? Are they going on? Are they wanting more of Christ? Because there is no kind of standing still and going in circles in the Christian life. Judas, Judas betrays, Jesus knows. He knows all that's about to happen. He knows all about the blood and the pain and the shame and the agony, but he's resolute, he steps into, he springs the trap. Jesus always has foreknowledge in any and every situation. We don't, but whatever you're going through, Jesus knows. Knows about it, and he knows what's going to happen. He knows your future, as well as he knows his own, and that's reassuring. And Jesus submits. Where does he find the courage to submit to this plan? Which is going to end in his death. He finds his courage in knowing that he's doing his father's will. This is relationship with the father that trumps all other concerns. And as we've said, Jesus cares. In what should be the moment of his own crisis, what happens when we have a crisis? Look at ourselves. What happens to Jesus in his crisis? He looks after his own. He pleads for their safety and none are taken. 
So if Jesus can do that in the midst of crisis, when he's being arrested, how much more can he look after you, who are his disciples and your concerns, now that he is reigning in heaven and is ascended and takes control of all things? That's in the garden. In the high priest's house or palace, the story moves on. Scene shifts from uh, verse uh, 15 onwards. We're now in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas. And you know the story. John is known to the high priest. He says, we, we never get told about that anywhere else, so we don't know how. But he is known, so he gets in. Um, Peter, for the moment, is left outside. Girl on duty at the door says to him, you're, you're one of his disciples. You're another one. I've seen John go in, but you're another one, aren't you? No, I'm not, says Peter. He stands there and says, I don't follow Jesus. Interestingly, there's a fire of coals. Um, That's a phrase that comes back in John 21, but you'll have to wait for that. Inside, Jesus is tried. He's asked to spell out his teaching in the hope that he will incriminate himself. Jesus calmly replies that his teaching has always been public and therefore common knowledge. So he doesn't step into, uh, this time he doesn't step into the trap. You need to be wise as snakes, innocent as doves. On this occasion, he, he, he chooses not to um, give them what they want to incriminate himself. It earns him a backhander to the face. Which again, did you notice Jesus calmly objects to? He says, why, if I'm telling the truth, why do that? So there are, are occasions not to turn the other cheek. Outside, Peter is challenged then again by this crowd round the fire of coals. You are one of his disciples. Nope, not me. I don't follow Jesus. What on earth is going through his mind? What's driving his behaviour? And then finally, one of the servants who'd been there in the garden at the arrest time, a relative of the man who's had his ear chopped off, so he's likely to remember, isn't he? Says, I saw you in the garden, didn't I? Peter says, no, you didn't. I saw you in church, didn't I, on Sunday? No, you didn't. And a cock crows. Peter knows he's done precisely what Jesus said he would do. But I just want to notice then a couple of things. Jesus' enemies hardened their hearts. We see the amazing hardness of unconverted people. So amongst these people who try him are people who've fallen to the ground in front of him in the garden. They've seen the amazing healing of the, of the bloodied ear. And it counts for nothing. Still arrest him, they still try him. So I guess we're not surprised that Jesus' enemies are hard, but it is amazing how hard the human heart can be. Uh, Miracles of themselves don't unharden the heart. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit um, and and the truth of the gospel. Those two things coming together and which soften human hearts, which is why it's so important we get words out at some point. Somebody has to hear the gospel and, and the Spirit work upon it for a heart to be softened. Because we're not surprised that Jesus' enemies harden their hearts. Jesus' friend denies him. If they're amazingly hard, then Peter is amazingly weak. He's a real believer, 
He's been a friend of Jesus for, um, for three years, but he fails and he falls. At the key moment, this, is, this, could, be his glory, this could be his glory moment, isn't it? You're one of his disciples, aren't you? Yes! He could have done, couldn't he? But he fails and he gets three chances to get it right and he still fails. So J.C. Ryle suggests there are three reasons that he fails. One is self-confidence. Kind of has a measure of pride. He, he says before this happens, I will never leave you. I am different from the others. I am stronger and I am better uh, and I will cope. Well, we know that pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, according to Proverbs. Because what he discovers through this is he is just like all the others. As Paul tells the um, Corinthian believers, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You are like all the others. You have no special strength. You have no ability to do this in your own strength. You have no special weakness to excuse you. You are just like everybody else, a common or garden sinner. How do you arm yourself against pride? Well, you just um, you arm yourself by sober judgment. Just take a realistic view of yourself before Christ. No temptation has seized you except what is common to people. And we all fall. But the second reason he suggests is that he, he suffers some laziness. Peter slept in the garden. We can see that in the other accounts. Peter slept when Jesus was praying. He sleeps when prayer is the order of the day. How often have we not prayed for the key moments that are about to come? Did, did you pray that the Lord would speak to you this morning? Uh, before you came to church. What about praying for a Monday morning, those key moments when you might get to talk to somebody about Jesus? How often have we not prayed for the important moments that have come up and then wondered why we failed? But probably most painfully, he suffers clearly from a, uh, a fear of people, doesn't he? He's a man pleaser. What a simple thing it ought to be to say the right thing at the right time. To own up to be a follower of Jesus. It ought to be just simple, isn't it? It's like a handful of words out of his mouth. Could have, you know, for Peter it was just, yes. Should be so simple, shouldn't it? Why is it so hard? Fear of people. Peter, the stakes are high. He might get arrested. But the choice is clear. He gets a really clear choice. To walk with Jesus in, into this and through this. Or, or essentially to walk away from Jesus. Run away. And so we, we might think that Peter's situation is, is harder than ours, but I'm not sure that's true. I think it might be harder when the consequences appear smaller. See, for Peter, it, was, it, was, it might be a difference between getting arrested and not getting arrested. For you, you say something, you don't say something. It's, it's the difference between somebody here having a sneer at you and you're looking a little bit lesser in somebody's eyes. Maybe your work colleagues think you're a bit nuts bit of a zealot, a bit of a fundamentalist. Um, we think that ought to be easier. I think in some ways it, it's harder. Because it's much, the temptation is much greater to say, it doesn't really matter whether I say anything here or not. It's not really going to make any difference. So I'm just going to keep shtum. So I think we struggle because we don't realise how hard it is to be honest about Jesus. 
And because we don't recognise how hard it is, we don't arm ourselves with enough prayer ahead of time. It's really hard to confess the foolishness of the cross when science sounds so certain about the way things work. It's hard to say we're sure of one way, that one way is true in the face of pluralism. It's hard to be keen about anything when apathy is cool. It's hard to potentially be poor and disadvantaged. I think that's probably the worst thing that's going to happen to you, though, as you will have seen by Israel, Israel Falau, Falu, I think he's called. He's, looks like he might lose his job for, for just speaking some Christian um, things out loud. He's a sportsman, Australian sportsman. But the worst that's happened to you is you look a bit nutty and you might get passed over for promotion or whatever it might be. But it's hard to be poor when poverty is so, de- is so despised and when wealth is lionised. Just assume that those who are rich are on the right track. And it's hard to take risks on the invisible God when we live in an evidence-based culture. And it's hard to be obscure and pressing on for Christ when the culture loves fame and an instant answer. We think that it ought not to be hard to own Jesus in words, but we find it almost impossibly hard. So I don't think we suffer from self-confidence, but maybe we do. Maybe we think it's not that hard. I ought to be able to do this. I'll just take it as it comes. Rather than saying, this is hard, hard, hard. I need all the Lord's help I can get. I'm going to pray, pray, pray. That he gives me the courage. Jesus' enemies hardened. Jesus' friend denies him. But Jesus goes unresistingly. He doesn't have to put up with this. Does he? doesn't have to put up with this small-minded individuals in a small country that doesn't even run itself. Because he's the Lord of glory. He's creator God. He's, he's the voice that spoke creation. He could speak and his bonds would be broken. Um, he, he could say, I am here again, and they'd all fall to the ground. He could will it and his enemies would fall into confusion and run away. But he acquiesces to being bound. He submits to being tried because he knows what's going to happen. His binding will ultimately set people free when he walks it through to crucifixion. His condemnation by this kangaroo court will buy acquittal for anyone who trusts in him after events have reached their climax. He is the willing substitute for our punishment. You knew that already, but I hope this helps you fix your eyes on it again. Scene moves on. Um, at the governor's palace, so Governor Pontius Pilate's palace, the Jewish leaders have arrested Jesus and, uh, and tried him illegally. They weren't, you weren't allowed to try somebody at night. They've tried him without witnesses, but they don't want to go into um, Pilate's palace because it will make them unclean for the Passover. We're going to execute this man, but we're not coming in because then we can't go to the evening service. So they try to finesse the situation. They they try to get Pilate to execute him without actually telling them what the charges is. Pilate sees through that, says, take him back, sort it out for yourselves. 
He applies Roman law, gets that far at least. You can't, you can't try somebody without telling me what the charges are. And there's an interesting conversation, which we can't go into in detail. We don't have time. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Because kingship is something he can get his head around. If Jesus is saying, I'm the king, then that's an insurrection. Jesus explains that he is a king, but a different kind of king. He's not the kind of king that needs hand-to-hand combat or military force. Why, oh, why have we got that so wrong in history? Jesus' kingdom progresses by proclamation of the truth, not by force of arms. Pilate understands, I think, at least that much, that he's no threat to the Roman government. And there's no basis to a charge. But as we'll see in a moment, he's not really interested in truth. So note a couple of things. The Jewish leaders have this kind of false conscientiousness. On the one hand, they want an innocent man put to death on false charges, but be home in time for church. One writer says, nothing is more common than for persons who are overzealous about rituals to be remiss about morals. A person who is overzealous about rituals is remiss about morals. That's true within the church as well as without it. When religion starts to become a series of rituals, things that you just do, you know, a kind of sense of rituals, and you think those rituals get you right with God, then somehow it gets divorced from genuine morality. Actually, it can become a, a cover for immorality. And you've seen that on the news. You don't need me to point that out to you. But we see it in churches too, when people fight over what the furniture is or what the rituals are. Then you know that they're starting to get separated from the reality of a relationship with God. So the Jewish leaders have this kind of false conscientiousness. There's, there's this mismatch between, uh, between their religion, which is one thing, and their actual behaviour, which is on the other. Pilate, on the other hand, just shows a weak conscience. It's pretty clear that he understands the lie of the land, that, that the Jewish leaders, they just don't like Jesus, they find him a threat, they're envious, and they just want him put to death on whatever charge will do. He understands that, but he doesn't carry it through. With the threat of a noisy crowd, he just aims for the easy path. He looks for a, comprom- he looks for a compromise, the Barabbas compromise. He says, Can, I'll, release you, so I'll release you one person. Let, why, why don't I make it Jesus? But it completely backfires on him. And you want to say to him, don't you, just stick to the truth, man. Just kind of carry through what you know to be true. Sometimes we need to say that to ourselves too. And in the midst of this, Jesus explains his kingdom. There are books written about the relationship of church and state. I'm not going to get deep into that this morning. But it's really clear, isn't it, that Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom from Pilate's kind of kingdom. And one writer says that Christ's kingdom can get on very well without them earthly kingdoms, but they cannot get on very well without Christ's kingdom. We, the church, we don't need state support, whether they give it or whether they don't. 
we will carry on. We don't need them. We're to pray for them that they give us freedom of speech and freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, but we don't need them. Church is not a thing of, of power or ability of technology. But they need us. Because despite the fact that Pilate can't see it, there is such a thing of truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong, an absolute sense of right and wrong. And it is God's sense of right and wrong that is true. God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is one, there is one religion that is right. And governments would do best to encourage it. Because that is their best hope of having citizens who do right or wrong. Because the thing about the state is they want to kind of they want us to do right and wrong, but they're powerless to produce it. They need the church because they need God to move people's lives. Because that is the only thing, the work of the Holy Spirit on the Word of God, that produces genuine goodness in people's lives. But the church, we don't need secular powers. We just need to proclaim the truth. Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't advance by the sword. But it does advance by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only thing we need to advance is, is Word. It's the Gospel spoken out to people. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. We don't need any force. don't need any governmental help. Okay, one writer says, this is the church in microcosm, in this chapter. You see now the kingdom of God works. You've seen how it's betrayed, you've seen how it's opposed, you've seen what real believers get up to. In the Jewish leaders, in, in Pilate, um, in Judas, and in Peter. Who are you in this story, okay? Which one is you? Which one do you identify with? Which one most kind of represents you in this story? Yeah. Shall I tell you who you are, if you're a Christian this morning? You're Barabbas. You're Barabbas. He's a rebel. He's a murderer. We learn in other Gospels. He's a condemned man. He's in prison. Then what? Suddenly, bang! Without anything he's done, the door is sprung, and he's a free man. What does he do? We don't find out. I guess he runs like crazy. Gets out of town. If you're a Christian this morning, you are your Barabbas. You're a person who, before you knew the Lord, rebelled against him. Before you knew the Lord, uh, you said harsh things about other people, which we read in Matthew is as bad as murder. You are a rebel and a murderer. Before you came to Christ, you were, you were a prisoner to, your, uh, to yourself, to your own desires. When you trusted Christ, when you saw that possibility, bang, jail doors flew open, and you were a free person. Isn't that amazing? What a great truth. What are you going to do with your freedom? I think Barabbas gets up and gets out of town. But what do you do when you're suddenly set free? Or you turn around, see who set you free, and you follow him. Follow him at all costs. Maybe you, Judas, I trust not, at the tipping point of walking away. Maybe you're Peter. And yes, we are all Peter too, sooner or later. His story written into all four Gospels. It's there for us to take note. He falls. 
he, he says, as, as, you, as, as you probably will have done at some point in this week, effectively said, no, not me, I'm not a follower. We all do that. We all need to repent of that. But we will see in a couple of weeks' time, the week after Easter, what happens to Peter on a beach with Jesus. If you want to find out ahead of time, read John 21. But maybe you are, Peter, overwhelmed by failure. Jesus knows where you are at. He is in control. And he has willingly followed this story to an end, which ends on a cross. Laying down a perfect life for your sin, ending them with resurrection to vindicate that the sacrifice has been accepted. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you're Judas at the tipping point, you can't decide whether you're following or not. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you're Peter and you fail, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's died to forgive you. Remember you're Barabbas. You've done nothing to earn your own freedom except to step out of the jail and walk it out and follow Jesus. And let's do that together.